Hey, Mark Lebusky for the Simply Practically Human podcast. My guest today is the co-founder of Adaptive Cultures and somebody who spends a lot of time in helping liberate human potential and wisdom in organizations, Andrew Brown, who's joining me from Melbourne. He'll talk a bit about Next Essential Crisis, which has helped him get to where he is today. And we've sort of got back together here after about four years since we last caught up uh, over a beer in Melbourne when you could do that. So it was fascinating to catch up with Andrew for a chat. And when he's not uh, helping organisations to adapt their cultures and to step into the work of leading self, he can be found restoring a 100-year-old home with his wife in Melbourne. Hope you enjoy the episode. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Lebusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by an amazing human who is all about liberating human potential and wisdom in organisations. It's uh, Andrew Brown. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Mate, I am am too because I think it's been, it could be three years, maybe more, maybe four years since we last caught up, which was with the incredible Alison Cameron, who who you do some amazing work with over a beer. And my recollection of that, mate, is we just did not have enough time to to have that conversation. It's taken me a bit of time to get back in touch with you, not over a beer, <laughs> but looking forward to the conversation. Before we get into it, though, mate, let me let me take you back to that night we had a beer. Uh, Alison, I, I, I bumped into Alison Cameron quite a few times. I really enjoyed following her work, and she said, look, you must meet Andrew. So we caught up for a beer. I always like to get my guests, if you can remember, your first impressions of catching up with me. Yeah. My first impression, Mark, was what a human being. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you had this beautiful way of, one, connecting with me, but I had a sense when we were chatting that uh, what you want to put out into the world is to create uh, more humane organisations, more humane worlds, and that really uh, resonated with me and something that's really stuck with me from that first meeting. As I said, I could have kept chatting for forever and and look you just shared then that liberating human potential and wisdom which is something that really drives you let me just ask you quickly before we get into your backstory what's so important about the liberation of that wisdom and potential yeah the first time that i really really appreciated that in my life was probably and this will get into the backstory pretty quickly but probably when i was in my early 20s and I had this appreciation that when you're influenced by someone or mentored or coached by someone, those uh, learnings often stay with you well and truly beyond that moment and the learnings that you share have ripples out into the world. And so the more that we actually go about being able to liberate the truth of who we are as human beings, our own innate wisdom and compassion that we bring into the world, the more we are able to actually create something much larger, much uh, more grander and I'm, I don't use the words larger and grander as a big shiny house I actually mean as humanity and society yep. and a much deeper sense of potential of what we can actually create there's a second part for me which is that when I look at the systems and structures that we currently lean into as a world we've created those you know, yes. we've created the organizations the systems of capitalism the systems of commerciality all consumerism it doesn't matter where you look <laughs> We are, the, we are the creators and that means that uh, we've created the systems which in some instances have been absolutely superb and driven us forward. Yes. It's also been the systems that stop us and hold us back. And so it's only by liberating human potential can we actually break out of the chains that we put on ourselves. Yeah, I love that. So let's get into your backstory. So I'm interested to get a sense of you know, where you grew up and a little bit about your background, your family, education, and then maybe what started to influence you to move towards this work? Because my sense is it wasn't just a an overnight thing that happened. That my sense with you from our conversations is that it's yeah. happened over some time. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah, it goes right back to my first existential crisis. I think when I was nineteen, Mark, and uh, opened those uh, those results halfway through first year uni and. 
never failed anything in my life and it was just a straight rung of E's and F's and it was the oh shit moment, what am I going to do with the rest <laughs> of my life and, and why am I doing this? And that moment for me uh, led to kind of like a week when I wake up each morning saying, why am I here? What on earth am I doing? And it felt like it was months and months, but at some point I woke up and it was like, oh, when I feel really resonant uh, with other people, when I feel really resonant is if I've got some kind of purpose on this planet, it's when I'm actually supporting other people's growth and development. And so for me, it was this profound awareness that whilst I was doing a science degree and everything else I was doing at that moment in time, that it was only if I could support other people's growth and development journeys was I going to be fully fulfilled as a human being. So that was kind of, that was the the kernel, which led to the next 30-odd years of work. In terms of um, maybe just stepping back (laughs) to that person that was doing that, I grew up classic Melbourneian kind of living, leafy eastern suburbs, uh, three kids and a dog, a beach house, uh, you know, go away to summer down to Phillip Island. Yep. Loved the uh, walks on the beach in both winter and uh, and in summer. Went to a school called Campbell Grammar, a private school in Melbourne. Very traditional, very clear in terms of expected outcomes for students. And I was not a, a rebel in the traditional sense of, you know, smoking weed and the Dunnies rebel, but I was very much a person who felt suppressed by those systems and the sense of there's got to be something that we can do which takes into account who I am as a human being more than these current systems are. So that kind of, that was very much stayed with me. And when I think about what kind of systems do we want to create for, for the world? Yep. We sort of go where we go with our education. We might be influenced by our parents or our careers teacher or something. Hey, Andrew, you're good at science. Go down that pathway. Yeah. I find it remarkable of someone who I'm going to say in his early 40s started to work out that he really wanted to do work that served others and helped others. I'm talking to someone who at 19 had a good idea and understanding of that. Yeah. Mate, what were you? You weren't smoking weed in that, you said, but what were you smoking or drinking to get your headspace into understanding that at such an early age? Yeah. It was profound unhappiness at that moment in my life, which was whatever's happening in my life is not working for me. Yep. And this realisation that when I look back while I was doing a science degree, as you say, there were very influential people in my life, parents, mentors, teachers who said, you know, you've got a good maths brain, you should do a maths degree. And it was that, do you follow your own journey or do you follow the path that society sets for you? And at that point in time, leading up until the time I was 19, I followed largely the path that society set for me, but with a level of reluctance and when that no longer worked for me, I really had to lean into that. And so I think the catalyst was that existential crisis. Yep. I think if I got straight C's and D's on that report, I probably would have done something that I'd be profoundly unhappy doing today, but I might have stuck with it. <laughs> I'm sure people listening to this would be like, yep, he's, he's just described me. He's <laughs> just described my life. So let's then get into the the... Yep. The existential crisis, then into the career that you, 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 the pathway that you went down. So more into your professional career now. It sounds to me like that sense of serving others and helping others to unlock and realise their potential stayed with you. Can you describe a bit for us about that that sort of professional journey? Yeah, I might give you a little bit of the shaggy dog as well because I certainly have had moments of losing that. Yep, and then rediscovering it and. One of the things that happened was I made the choice when I was 19, basically I'm going to do a dip ed and the decision to do a teaching degree kind of gave me focus and attention for the next three years, qualified as a teacher, was working with teachers who were profoundly unhappy in their profession, who felt suppressed by the teaching system and basically wasn't sure that I was actually going to be able to um, to actually have a great experience in that system. So I ended up going back and doing an actuarial degree, which was back to the mathematics. Yep. Got commercial roles, qualified as an actuary in 1996 and then had that second existential crisis, which was what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I'm now earning a good income. I've got a good career. I've got family at this stage, one child in 1996. And then it was like, if I leave this, there's a whole heap of things that I'm also leaving on the shelf in terms of security. But at the same time, I don't actually follow what I want to do as a human being, I will be profoundly unhappy. So 
that second existential crisis, the realisation I had out of that is what I actually want to be involved in is in terms of teaching. That for me was about supporting growth and development, was how do I support growth and development into organisations. So qualified as an actuary, did a truckload of work around how I would move into growth and development spaces. So the next 10 years just did lots and lots of different degrees and things and I was holding this beacon for a 10-year journey. Ironically, my financial career took off because instead of being the, in quotes, financial expert or the person that does technical decisions, I was much more likely to coach and mentor and support the development of other people because that was the career path. Ended up uh, wandering into Singapore and did an appointed actuary role there over to the Philippines, did a CFO role. This was sort of the early 2000s with the family, came back to Australia and then uh, in 2006, after another two, three years, got an opportunity after doing lots of work in finance areas around culture and mentoring development to transition to head up learning development for a company called AXA. And the part around that, around the journey is when I arrived within AXA and as the head of learning development, I thought, man, I can create these extraordinary learning experiences for people and they will absolutely be able to grow and develop to their full extent. This will just be extraordinary. And First program, uh, after five days, people came back. Magnificent experience. It was down at Mount Eliza in an off-site retreat. Within about two or three months, what I realised was the culture and the organisation was so strong that many of those people, best will in the world, would turn back very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the question was, how do you actually create environments? What's actually happening here, which is causing some very capable people not actually being able to liberate their own uh, potential within their organisations? One thing in common, I don't know if we spoke about this over the beer, but I, I did a dip ed as well. And um, what you just talked about then would absolutely describe me. It was leaving education and teaching because I sat in a in a staff room full of people who were, I talked about successfully unfulfilled before, but they were <laughs> toxic to the point of yeah. uh, the kids are no good, the, the principal's no good, my life's no good. Yeah. They had a great passion for the work that they wanted to do, which was help to educate young young minds, but yeah. that the system that they were working in was not allowing that. And, and and what you've just described now to me as well and to the listeners of created an amazing program and then saw people come back into the, the system and the system very the system's a very sneaky system, by the way. It has a great <laughs> way of I say lurching in the shadows. Popping out when it needs to to make sure people stay, I guess in we call it their swim lanes. I don't like using that corporate jargon. Getting people to stay where they need to, mm-hmm. and then you sort of went from there into into the consulting space, which is something now you've been doing for over a decade. Is that right? Yeah. So long story short, the back end of my time within AXA and the development of some of the culture work there was this insight that if you look at how organizations actually evolve over time they go through in the same way human beings go through stages of development observing though many of the culture frameworks many of the methods of actually using organizations were not actually enhancing potential but often limiting it yeah your point that often felt like swim lanes yes we're going to do great leaders but these are the lanes that you must swim within <laughs> as opposed to this is a large pool of leadership and what are the different strokes that we might actually be able to do. (laughs) Imagine if we were to get all the leaders to actually reflect on both their individual uniqueness as well as what we collectively want to create and we brought those two together, how extraordinary would that be? So Alison and I started catching up in about 2011 or 12 over a few glasses of red wine and a few coffees around our despair of many of the methods that were actually in play and what they did. And that was the genesis or the birth for adaptive cultures. Yeah, love it. Let's talk a bit about this idea of adaptive cultures. And and, and I, I want to throw in here too, I guess, adaptive leadership, because people who know me know I say it unabashedly, I've drunk from the fire hydrant, the Kool-Aid of adaptive leadership yeah. in a big way. The reason being, Andrew, is because it helped me to start to make sense of how I was being. That was the first time I'd actually worked out that people were telling me I was different um, yeah. And I thought different was bad, and it could have been bad. But then I read the the that new <laughs> stuff, and I'm like, bloody hell, this is. So I, I got that fascination with it. I know you're a you understand it, and you've sort of been involved in it as well. If we're going to create adaptive cultures, we need to have adaptive leadership. What is adaptive leadership to you? 
Mark, Mark, for me, the really simplest grassroots of adaptive leadership, it's the world that we're in rapidly changes and evolves all the time. We bring with us these existing worldviews from the past and existing ways of doing things and that structures and everything else, and they create boundaries rather than creating expansion. And if we're going to create something different, we need to have a different way of seeing the world. And what adaptive leaderships invite us to do is actually step back and look at what do we actually need to learn about the systems that we're part of to actually be able to progress? What do we actually need to look at what we don't know, not aware of, that we can actually start to learn? And how do we need to do that together? Because you hold pieces of wisdom, I hold pieces of wisdom, someone else in the system holds pieces of wisdom. If we just get locked into our own own worldviews and our own stuff, then we're not actually going to be able to create a different future. So adaptive leadership for me is both about very much that individual sense-making journey as well as it is about a collective learning journey. When I introduce people to the the idea of it, people get excited about it, but then the really challenging bit, and you talked about it before, is the difficulty of staying on the path Uh, of adaptive leadership because it is about stepping back and, and I guess in a world of rapid change, in a world of last week's results and the quarterly reviews and all of these things, we can get knocked back into another place. Why is it so difficult for human beings to stay on this pathway? Um, Also, you know, organisations to stay on this pathway. For me, human beings, just my my sense is that we're all hardwired to be able to learn and to apply those learnings in our world that become unconscious and then we go and continue to do those. And that's put us in incredibly good stead. I walk upstairs every morning. I don't have to consciously think about how much I measure. It's all part of my neural pathways. It's all locked in there. The challenge is that my stairs don't change every day, right? (laughs) So I don't need to keep recalibrating it. So it's perfect. But in the worlds that we're part of, they do change every day. And we're now treating an entirely different staircase as if it's the stairs that we've always walked up at home. So that's really difficult for people because we actually need to slow down and pause to actually get into that thinking. So I think that that's, for me, that's the first part. The second part is for most organisations, the busyness now, you know, I, I'm not allowed to say that organisations I work with have obsessive, you know, have ADD, but most of the organisations I work with are certainly excessively busy to the extent that they don't have time to actually think about culture. And they don't have time to think about strategy and therefore they don't have time to be successful. So you end up in these, for me, this death spiral of we're too busy to actually be able to step out of our own demise. And when you look at why people do that, for me that comes down to security needs as well. We kind of lock on to wanting some kind of certainty of solution because we know if we step into this adaptive space that we actually have to step into the unknown. Mm. What are your reflections on that? Oh, look. Ditto plus, I guess, some other things, busyness. And busyness has become a badge of honour. And, and, and I think also busyness for me has, has been elevated, Andrew, because there's a lot of, obviously, fear has been heightened in the last 20 months. I think there was already fear there of, you know, restructures, resizing, all of the things that were going on. So if I'm Mark, I better be busy in back-to-back meetings because <laughs> I, I'm then relevant. Yeah. I'm relevant in my organisation. Yeah. So I think that these are the things that is taking us away from the conversation I hear a lot is this. I'll get to that culture stuff. I'll get to that human come by our stuff you talk about, Mark, when I've done yeah. the real work. Yeah. And, and, and I guess my take on it today is that, that there are two types of work and they're both really important. There's the technical strategy process, policy, procedure work, transactional work and then there's the human work yeah because i'm coming from such a human space i I was a bit blinded to the importance of the other stuff but what i'm now learning is is the i think the adaptation is the combination of both yeah to to bring the power and you talked uh, a little note i got before this was uh, talking today about the intersection between that adult development and that bringing humanity alive in in organizations and i think that's such an important point is that Mm. i just wonder at sometimes whether we whether human beings undersell their potential, their ability to change, adapt, thrive, and, and they sort of get caught more in the fear space of their hard wiring of, I just have to survive. Um, so I think that's sort of how I, how I see it. Yeah. 
what else are you thinking about as I've sort of said that, if it made any sense at all? What, what comes to mind for you? No, no, it makes, makes profound sense. The, the SCARF model, David Rocks, is very much based around, you know, what happens when human beings go into change, stress situations and the defaults to the, you know, the things like the, all the security needs, whether that be status and hierarchy, uh, autonomy, um, relationships, fairness, etc. The observation I would have is that whilst that's one part of how humans may default, it's not the only things that actually help people to navigate through change. Yep. So we don't need to keep seeking to have autonomy <laughs> and that might mean uh, telling the boss to piss off when we actually need some support or advice or ignoring our mentor. Yeah? So there's a dark side treat to this. Yep. Yep. It's also actually about what are the growth potential needs that we can focus into so how do we start looking at, and Alison and I call this scope, yeah? So the S in scope is very much about the um, security needs that, that Rock talks about. There's also the O is about the orienting values. How do we actually see what's really important to us? Yeah? If integrity is really crucial and we need to have a difficult conversation with someone, we're out of integrity if we don't focus on the concern that we have for that person and we're out of integrity if we don't hold up the care that we need and the compassion for that person. Yes, so, so orienting values are really important. The purpose that we're here for, whether that be as individuals or whether that be in larger organisations, is really important. And so when we over-focus on the security needs without focusing on the things that can drive us forward, it can feel like we get locked into these ever-increasing circles. And there is a way out. Yes. And the way out is to, is to focus on those higher-order values. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and but this is why it's such a challenge because you talked before, which I really like. You know, we talked about the path of society yeah. in some respects helping you to make decisions about where you're going to go. I find that extremely relevant to the pathways of organisations as well. So if you're an emerging leader and you're listening to this and you're starting your journey of leadership greatness, there will be the system that will have a... yeah. That this is the path that we take because this is the path that we've always used. And uh, from what you said there, what I sort of start to pick up is that I think organisations and, and and those who have the ability to change these things in organisations need to start to realise that in order for us to thrive and to liberate that human potential, we're going to have to let go of some things here. Yeah. And, and this is why I like looking at at your framework in, in the adaptive cultures framework, yes. it very, very clearly in five great stages here and looking at the different cultures. Yeah. When you were talking before, I was thinking I, I could see those things straight away. So I might get you to talk a little bit about how do we get caught in the old way? Because it happens over time, this too, by the way, Andrew. Yeah. What are the ways that organisations can move along the continuum to get to a more adaptive culture. Yeah. Mark, I was just reflecting on what you're describing there and that those the young leader looking into an organization and how do I <laughs> how do I um, have a fulfilling career, contribute to this and actually help to lead it at some stage in the future. And you can often walk into those organizations with incredible optimism on day one. And then somewhere around between days 365 to day 1370, whatever, that can start turning into more to cynicism because we start seeing the hamster wheel or things that a promise may not go according to plan, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I really resonate deeply with that. There was something that was coming up for me I'd like to share and then maybe we'll um, step into the into the framework. And what was coming up for me was this sense of power and authority in organisations and how that's held and our perceptions of human beings about power and authority. And very often, and this is when we think about leadership, we don't think about everyone as being a leader. We think about the most senior people. Yep. And when people in organisations say, oh, yeah, yeah, everyone's a leader, but when you ask them so who, who the leaders are, they'll refer to the senior executives or they'll say my leader and they're not talking about the new graduate they've got, they're talking about the CEO. You know? yep. So we absolutely ascribe and have an identity of leadership being around power and authority and we see it as the power and authority that's potentially given to people through the roles that they play in organisations. And to me, that's a, a very traditional view of leadership, which Henry Ford came up with a bit over 100 years ago in terms of organisations, largely uneducated workforce, let's give people clear directions. Great when you've got a largely uneducated workforce and you've got one colour car being black. 
really <laughs> shite in 2020, yeah, when you've got thousands <laughs> of different cars coming off and the technology is changing at a rapid pace and the guy on the front line knows a chuck more about technology than the CEO. So the whole notion of hierarchical leadership in some ways is really outdated yet still really reinforced. So I wanted to share that that was coming up for me because I'm thinking of that new graduate coming in. My invitation to that new graduate is you are a leader. Yes. Your leadership doesn't come from the position you have in the hierarchy. It comes from the choices that you make. It comes from the questions that you ask. It comes from the boundaries that you explore (laughs) to know what you can influence. And as we go through that, we continue to expand that influence over time. Even as I was saying, um, you know, that emerging leader, that young leader, I was hearing a voice in my head saying, hang on, what about the older ones? Because, <laughs> you know, again, with the Heifetz work and Linsky's work and leadership yeah. can be taught and whatnot. As soon as I said that, I almost had this reaction to go, that you're not captured at all here. This is very much relevant to everyone in an organisation, this adaptation. And some people will say, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and that's just the way Andrew is and he won't change. Well, I'm sure you've seen some great examples of where people who are maybe more at our vintage, Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm 54, <laughs> have been able to adapt um, as things were changing. Yeah. Mark, the, one of the great privileges for me doing this work is sometimes the greatest change comes from the most surprising uh, sources. Yep. <laughs> if someone holds a belief about me that I can't change and enough people hold that belief, it becomes reinforcing, yeah? And so I need to actually be really conscious that each time I judge a person as not being able to change, I'm actually reinforcing those beliefs, whether I'm doing it consciously or unconsciously. <laughs> yeah. I'm somehow sending out the, the vibes around that. And if people uh, want to reflect on that, think about your own family system, what happens when you go back into your parents' place if you haven't been there for five years. I know what I do. I go straight to the cupboard and grab one of mum's cookies, right? <laughs> and I know that's at one level a ridiculous example, but at another level there's parts of cultures and parts of things where we reinforce into ways mm. of doing stuff, yeah? So if we want to have different perceptions, if we want to change our own self-perception, we also need to invite people into how they see us. Yes. Yeah? And what that means in terms of the work in an organisation and actually creating different organisations and creating greater liberation, we need to hold the possibility that everyone has the potential to grow. Yeah. And I think of a crusty old risk manager we were working with who had a group of people. He was in his 60s. He'd um, had a reputation as being uh, pretty hard to work with by the organisation, very fixated on finding the problems as opposed to working with them to find solutions. And um, one of the coaching sessions for him opened up that he wanted to actually leave a legacy of a better risk culture, but he realised a better risk culture was not meaning that it was something where people complied with what he wanted, but it was something that people did of their own volition. Yep. And when he had that realisation, he also realised that what was reinforcing the culture of compliance as a, rather than a cultural ownership was him. Yes. And so that moment <laughs> was able to change how he went about his work What it also did was he would then have conversations with other people to say, you know, I suddenly realised that what was holding the culture back was not all the people I was complaining about, it was me. And when people start to say that, that to me is when shift becomes really powerful because you hear and see and experiencing a portion of people that see that the culture is not created by this thing out there. It's not by the executive up there. It's something that lives in every single one of us, in every single one of our interactions. So if you want to change culture, (laughs) you change your interactions. You want to change culture, you change the way you show up. Uh, That's such a powerful story because there would be so many examples of that particular profile of a human being. You know, at times people will say to me, I'll give you a bit of a rundown on each of the people in the team you're about to work with. I don't know if you ever hear that one, but I'm like, just save it. Save it for your own judgment because I need to come in and, with a blank canvas and I need to work my way through this or it'll be like, hey, you know, that's just Andrew and Andrew's just like that so Andrew's never going to change. And I, I don't know whether you see it this way but I always see those ones as the greatest opportunities. Yeah. And, and usually that human being is a bit like your risk manager. He's, he or she's sitting there going, I want to leave a legacy but I just, I've been brought up in a system and a pathway that 
I can't see that, but but the power comes when you start to do the work. And I know you talk about leading self, leading in the team and leading in the organisation. Yeah. The work of leading self. Yes. I'd be interested if if you could share two or three practical tips for people to be able to step back into the leading self part rather than sort of looking looking out and turning the mirror outwards. Yeah. The work we do with organisations around leading self for us is, is central to the culture work. Yeah. And often people see culture as much being more around the structures or the ways of working. And while those are true, <laughs> who put the structures in place and who works together? It's human beings, right? Yeah. So, so unless you get to the root cause of what's causing the structures to be rooted or what's causing us to have crappy relationships, um, it's very difficult to move forward. Otherwise, it's just very surface-level phenomena and nothing really changes. So it's absolutely central. With the work, my my own personal growth story kind of came through initially through the NLP school, which is very much around you model something out, you look at what excellence looks like and you start embodying it and see how that kind of spreads through your system. Yep. And I used to go on these sessions where you'd have 100 people in the room and they'd be profoundly influential and people would walk out and be backslapping and high-fiving and saying, mate, this has changed my life. You know, this is a three-day off-site. You'd catch up with a group of people three months later and maybe a smaller group of 20 or so and there'd be two or three people who were still on that journey. Yes. And so what was it <laughs> that in these magnificent change moments when we had that beacon and light on the hill that we weren't able to keep going and progressing? And what I started exploring in the early to mid-2000s was this notion of stages of adult development. Yeah. And as soon as I came across this work, it just completely answered a thousand of those questions I had of why is change so difficult. And it's not that people can't change. It's that we're not necessarily ready for change when the change is enforced on us. <laughs> we're not necessarily appreciative when change is imposed as opposed to owning it. Yep. And there's a whole heap of pieces there which say that if we're actually going to create different systems, we need to be on, on a significant learning journey. And if we start seeing learning as a human being about stages of growth and development, that never stops, right? It's not that I become perfect and complete. I'm Andrew Brown 2011 and that's it for the rest of my life. Sadly, if that was true, um, I would not be on this call with you today because I wouldn't have been able to log on to this uh, bloody webinar, <laughs> let alone be able to adapt to my clients and how rapidly they're changing. So we all have to be on those growth journeys. So that's a bit of a shaggy dog to come down to what are really specific and simple examples. What I would say is the first thing that we do when we work with human beings and individuals inside organisations is to help them to explore what is one growth edge for them, one area that if they were able to move the most and make the biggest difference to their influence in the organisation, their leadership and their capacity to actually be successful. And most of the time when you invite people to say, is it, that might be something that's also you've seen in other aspects of your life. So a simple example would be something like I, I tend to judge other people very quickly and shut them down if they've got a different view. Yep. When we start to explore where that comes from and, and what sits underneath that, we start to get to some of our bigger assumptions on the planet. And so the big assumption work will be things like, I assume that if I listen to other people, I'd be unduly influenced because they're more powerful than me. And when people actually are able to name those really big assumptions that sit underneath their system, one is it's kind of starts making sense of a thousand different behaviours they have, not just that one goal that they're yeah. working on. But secondly, to your point, is then when we support them, it's not like peering over the surface and just assuming that you won't judge anyone in the future. It's actually starting to practice observing yourself much more. So it's a really simple application. It's how many times did I judge someone today? Yep. How many times did I cut someone off, not listen to them, and it stopped me from learning more? And over time, you build those tests up. So we have very much test, learn, iterate. And then when someone looks back in six months' time, they're often like, oh, my God, I've come so much further than I imagined. But it's because they just take those simple, practical steps, step after step. You got me very excited when you started to step into the stages of adult development. And then you talked about big assumptions. I'm a, a massive fan of the work of Keegan and, and Lay and yeah. immunity to change, the stages of adult development, which I have on, a, on pinned on a board in front of me, <laughs> which I, I reckon I read them every second day. And it's just like... 
helps me to think about where I'm at because I think I I could feel like I'm going really well in that and then all of a sudden I'm back, you know, under instructions and authority of others. And, um, and then immunity to change, which I think is mm. one of the most powerful tools for self-change. Just, just on that then, so the work of self, I've always been somebody who's been a little bit of a fan of some profiling tools, but I, I've become less of a fan of them as time's gone on. I, I've, what I've sort of noticed, Andrew, and I'm interested in your comment here, is that the work of leading self, and I'm going to say, I'm going to throw a few rocks at the space that we both work in, in the consultancy yeah. field. I think there's a level of laziness in the leading self work where we'll get someone to be profiled, We'll spend 60 minutes on it. We can we can put them into a box and then we'll move on to the really important work, which is how do I motivate teams? How do I have difficult conversations? Yeah. What, what's your thoughts on if we're going to truly adapt? And I don't think, I don't want to hold you to an absolute percentage, but how much more time should we be spending in the, in the leadership of self space than what we may be today, traditionally in this leadership development work? My, my, my belief is that you should be spending a much more time yeah. around the leading of self because leading of self then translates into the leading of teams and translates into the leading of the organisation. Yeah, excellent. And so it's, it's absolutely foundational. In terms of the profiling, you know, there are many tools that have been designed over the years to describe what good leadership is and many of those tools were designed in the 1970s and 80s. Right? Mm. Now, I'm not criticising 1970s or 80s leadership, but I do think the leadership challenges that we're facing into today and what the planet needs today is also very different to what it needed 30 to 40 years ago. Yet we're still profiling people and telling people what good leadership looks like based on something that's 40 years old. Yep. And what that means to me is that we need to have much more open architecture, and by that I mean we need to focus much more on who the human being is what's their own learning journey that they've been on, what's truly important to them on the planet, what are their potentials and how do we liberate that as a way of liberating true leadership as opposed to trying to fit them into a box which says that you must do this, 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 this and that to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like, yeah, again, it's a swimming pool analogy which is we don't want to throw out the pool entirely and have no boundaries at all. The water will just flow out, right? We still need to have some edges. Yep. Jeepers, make them wide enough that we can actually swim in there and create something and create a few waves. I love that. As you were talking then, and you, you'd mentioned the swimming pool before, and and I think there's a, there's a pattern starting to emerge with this, is this concept of the uniqueness of human beings so that your leadership pathway, your yeah. your lived experience before we ended up in a room together will really shape you up about how you demonstrate leadership. And I think one of the great opportunities is is for particularly people in our space, and we are privileged to do this work, is that we hold our nerve around allowing people's uniqueness to shine rather than going, we sort of want to get you all to average at this (laughs) so we can get that score that then means that we have done okay and I think that's one of the great challenges of this adaptive work is that holding your nerve in times of as a facilitator you've got to hold your nerve just as much as anyone else yes how how are you experiencing that with holding your own nerve because I feel at times mate I say to my clients it feels a bit like we're walking through quicksand right now yeah. And they'll be like, yeah, we really enjoyed this morning thing. It was really fun and energetic. But now I don't like this and can we move on? And, and that's when I know we're doing the right work. So how does that feel for you? That- Look, matey, that resonates so strongly with me. I, I can't say it any more strongly than that. It just resonates to every pore of my body. Um, one of the things we often do when we're working with clients, because often the first phase of culture work is the most joyous phase, right? You, you help the organisation start seeing itself more, start having conversations and real conversations about what could potentially change. People feel like, oh, my God, we could have been doing this all along. Why we haven't? But, you know, hey, we're actually starting to see that we can cohere together much better. And so you liberate this possibility and this hope. And it's such a wonderful place to be in, but it's kind of like the (laughs) the calm before the storm because the real work starts then to happen, which is, oh, yes, we all need to let go of stuff because we're duplicating resources. So who's going to let go of that out of their budget, right? Who's actually going to allow a secondment of their most valuable person to another area because the other area needs them more? 
And that's when all those decisions, when it actually goes into application, becomes really hard. Yep. And it becomes hard because we take a more finite view of whether it be our own team, our own security needs, our own KPIs, whatever, as opposed to something much larger than ourselves. We might even take a view of putting our organisation ahead of the environment and we may not disclose how much we're emitting in terms of carbon or other bits and pieces, yeah? We might yep. dress up and call tobacco something which is an entertainment industry as opposed to <laughs> a carcinogenic. Surely not. <laughs> so all of these things happen. So to come back to your question, what, a couple of things that I find are really important. One is what I call future pacing. And I will say to organisations, you are finding this really joyful at the moment, right? I can't promise you it's always going to be as joyful as this. What I can promise you is there are going to be some difficulties ahead. And those difficulties aren't bad. It's just that's the pathway we're going to need to navigate because if we're actually going to create something which is profoundly different to what it is today, we'd already be there if it was easy. Yep. So I find that that is helpful for me because it helps me to kind of pace the journey as well. The other part is accepting that sometimes you are not going to be able to change a particular team or an organisation Yes. and accepting that it may well be the role of the triage nurse. The best I can do at the moment is to support the troops, to heal a bit, to not be injured and to get back on their ponies, but to help them over the longer term to think about what do we need to do to actually stop going to war and have a very different way of working together. We tend to look at leadership at times about what we've got to add and what we need to bring that's new. I think that the greatest challenge of leadership is what we're prepared to let go of, the things that have served us well along the way. And when I have that conversation with um, people in the room and, and, you know, I'll I'll grab a Linskyism or a Heifetzism and say, what are you prepared to lose in order for this team and this organisation to gain People look at you like stunned mullets. They're like, <laughs> you really want you wanted me to lose something that's made me successful, that's given me status, which has created identity and reputation. And I'm like, yeah. yep, I am. Because yeah. that's fundamentally the breakthrough point. And I love what you said that sometimes I walk away from it and go, well, we couldn't get there. We gave it a good shot, but perhaps the readiness wasn't there. Or perhaps this is the first step of the readiness to get them there somewhere down the track. Yeah. There's something you're describing there, Mark, and it's around the, um, you know, that sense of the team, so the guy saying, well, you know, everything that's led me to be successful today, you're asking me to give up, yeah? And so what is it we believe success looks like? Yeah. <laughs> we believe success looks like having larger teams with bigger budgets, and that's what the organisation has always enforced, and guess what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're going to keep reinforcing that. So until we start getting down to the core beliefs, not just the individuals hold, but the collective organisation holds and what they really reward or what's really taboo, we won't actually move forward. And, and so a lot of the culture work for us is actually surfacing what are the core beliefs that give rise to those patterns that we keep seeing occurring time and time again. And sometimes with a group, the best thing you can do is to say, hey, <laughs> what's created this mess that you're sitting in right now and you look at yourself and your teammates and colleagues what's been your role in this that's the very moment when you feel the oxygen gets sucked out of the room mate (laughs) that's the moment where all of a sudden that that magnificent little thing you did at the start yeah seems like it was a million miles away and and you can see people's body language change their facial expressions change you introduce a concept of the known unspokens and they're all like get me out of here. Like, <laughs> let me go back to the safety of the system that has brought me up to be a certain way. So, like, this is important work, but it's bloody hard work. So, so, yeah. so let me let me ask you this one. Oh, I'm a bit reticent with this. I don't know why, but, but I just, I'm speaking to someone who's all over this. I, I reckon I'm a bit of a simple sort of a human being who says there are some simpler ways to get to where we need to get to, not notwithstanding there's complexity and whatnot, but I have a view that we do chase a bit of the complex or the complicated, and sometimes that's a bit of a way to not go to to get to where we need to get to, which is where the hard work is. What are your thoughts around humans, human beings, I guess, preference at, at times and more times than I think they should to go to the complex and the complicated rather than maybe getting up on the balcony and looking down for maybe simpler patterns that are going on? Or am I off the bloody, am I off my tree here? 
No, no, I, I reckon you've got a really good view from the tree you're sitting in at the moment. It's um, what, what was coming up for me when you were sharing that was a politician who was explaining why the Labor Party was supporting decisions to turn back the boats and how that aligned with uh, Australian values and human values of, um, you know, supporting people who uh, were displaced, et cetera, and the response that she gave was, oh, it's a very complex system. And for me, that moment of it's a very complex system, it becomes an excuse for why we're not actually going to act according to our values and integrity. And for me, it's actually really simple at that moment, and it's really profoundly simple. Are we going to act according to our values of being humane (laughs) or are we not? (laughs) And you can dress it up and everything else and call it complex, but sometimes by calling it complex, what we're doing is putting a camouflage over what's actually real or true yep. or helping us to justify decisions which are not necessarily justifiable. Yep. So that's what, what was coming up for me when you were saying that, matey. Mate, I love that. I love that. I, I, I've not heard it explained. This is, I think, episode 93. I've nev- not heard it explained so well before. It's like when people start to throw in the, the word complexity, a bit of a smokescreen to get them to a place where if you get underneath that, like the values of being humane, and they, they don't, they didn't show up then. They were hiding them behind the, this is a complex issue. No. Well, mm, I don't know. Hey, um, we could talk for bloody hours here, and, and I, I don't think I've given enough credence. So I want to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm actually going to invite you back at some time, and I wouldn't mind too. Alison Cameron, if you do listen to this, get the dynamic duo on at some stage to, to get more into the framework because I think the framework is incredible. But where can the listeners learn more about adaptive cultures? And you know, I know you've got your white paper, which is brilliant. Where do they go to find out a bit more about your organisation and, and the great work you do? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, you can find us at adaptivecultures.co um, is the website. Uh, we've got a, a presence on LinkedIn as well, Adaptive Cultures as an organisation, while we have a consulting arm, um, you know, we were founded on the belief that if we're going to create a different society, um, we need to liberate people's potential in a very different way and we need to create more humane organisations. So to support that, we have a development program that we run, um, PDP, we call it, and we also have a community of practitioners and the communities catch up on a, on a uh, we have a portal on uh, hosted on Mighty Networks and that allows conversations and dialogues around people's more tricky challenges. So invitation is to um, pop onto our website. You can also contact me at uh, andrew at adaptivecultures.co. I'd uh, be more than happy to take any, any questions or comments that people have got. Just on that community, I was reading today, and Alison's mentioned this to me before too, like, you know, when you were able to get in the room with people, and we talked about how much we missed that, that these communities, um, or you have a, a session where communities can come together. Is there something planned in, let's say, fingers crossed, in the early stages of 2022 for that? Yeah, there is. In February 22, we're kicking off our next professional development program. Uh, it's a 12-month program. We have extraordinary practitioners uh, who are coming together for that one and it's uh, we often get a range of people from CEOs through to HR directors, sort of internal change practitioners, often people from Agile community as well who are looking at how do I bring culture working to support or complement that and also many external practitioners. So, yeah, that's kicking off, which is pretty exciting. On a monthly basis, we also run community webinars. Yep. And we have practitioners who will share some of their journeys, some of the ways they've applied the adaptive cultures methodologies. Um, I'll occasionally do a presentation, Alison will occasionally do one, but it's not about us. It's actually yep. about the community and about creating community. And that's why I love it how you both walk your talk, because even saying it's not about how many bums you get on the seats in those things. And I love that it's on your website. It's just there it is. It's not about the commerciality and the bums on the seats. This is about getting a community of people in the room, humans in the room who are sharing different mm. perspectives, different methodologies. And, and I think that's, that is helping to liberate that human potential and wisdom that you spoke about. Andrew, so good to have you on here, mate. And I, I felt at times, which was amazing, that I was actually being interviewed. So you did that ex- exceptionally well. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks so much, Mark. A real great pleasure and great to connect again and looking forward to our next chat. One of the things I really loved about today's episode was 
Andrew's ability to get me to reflect on some things that were going through my mind. So rather than me asking all the questions, Andrew's curiosity shone today by saying, you know, what do you think about that? And what's going through your mind now on that one? And I guess there's so many parallels, not, notwithstanding that I didn't know this before today, but we both have a diploma of education. We both got out of the teaching game pretty much for the same sorts of reasons, because of, I guess, what we were experiencing with other humans and, and how much that they were fed up with the system. And I don't think that's just for education. I think that's for, for most organisational systems. And he talked about, you know, Henry Ford and the system we've worked under for 100 years and how that needs to change because... These days, we're not talking about uneducated folks standing at production lines. We're talking about people who are using lived experience combined with their education. Um, and a lot of those people are demonstrating leadership at levels that is well below what we expected or where we expect leaders to be. His thoughts around the connection between the old system that power and authority equals leadership how we need to see ourselves more in order to be able to be more adaptive and to lead others. First, the work is leading self before we get into leading teams and leading within the organisation. I loved his story as a, as a young man in that existential crisis that he went through where he realised that the science degree wasn't for him and that there was something that was more important and that was his ability to serve and help people to realise their full potential, which ended up with him crafting out a, a very successful corporate career. But then also understanding from that situation that even when he could create the most incredible learning and development experiences, that usually they, they were lost on the many and only stayed with the few for you know a period of sort of three months afterwards. So the work that Andrew does today with Alison Cameron in the adaptive cultures business is very much about getting into the work of self, that this work is challenging, that this work is hard, that this work has a lot to do with values and, and our values base. And I guess just to round this one off, his conversation around the use of complexity as some sort of screen or some mask, you know, as soon as it gets difficult for us to be able to explain something, we can go to the thing, it's a very complex system, you know. And um, I loved how he was sharing that the specific example he used with the boats overboard, that the children overboard, was really um, that someone was trying to mask that they weren't living their values. And this is really important in the work that these two do. Great to have a conversation with Andrew. I do hope to get him and Alison back on earlier next year to talk about the adaptive cultures framework, because I think there's some really, really interesting things to pick up there. Hey, if you love this one, get out and tap those thumbs and give it five stars and a nice little review. Thank you very much. And if you liked it, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.